In 2024, the Triathlon Hour is brought to you by The Feed. Thefeed.com is a website that has all of the world's best training and race day nutritional products in one place. The Feed's goal is to help you experiment with and ultimately find what nutritional products work best for you to get the most out of your performance in training and racing. They have almost 200 brands in stock, so you can buy as much from one brand as you want or as little as one gel from a brand. And I really do think that's the big benefit is you can try one thing from every brand and that way you'll find exactly what it is that you love and works for you. And having it all at one place at thefeed.com makes it convenient to do so. There's no more having to go to multiple websites and pay for shipping on them all and wait for them to come on different days or drive around to multiple shops. You can just get everything you need at thefeed.com and have it all shipped to your front door together so it arrives at the same time. Okay, so last week, the PTO announced their 2024 T100 World Tour schedule with eight races around the world and 40 contracted athletes. Sam and I were going to get together and rush out a podcast for you, but instead we decided to take our time with it so that we could bring you something that we hope will be a bit better than what we could have done last week rushed. We want to bring you a behind-the-scenes podcast of all things the PTO and T100 World Tour. Now, I still intend to ask all the questions you knew you wanted answered, but I'm hoping this way we'll find out some questions and some answers to some questions that you didn't even know you wanted answered. And so introducing the CEO of the PTO, or maybe it's the CEO of the T100 World Tour. I'm a bit confused with it all. Sam Renouf. Welcome, Sam. Hi, there. Good to be here again. Nice to connect, Jack. Um, and it's the CEO of the PTO. That's uh, that's going to be the job title. The, the PTO is going to stay as our organization name. Um, and then T100 is our consumer-facing name. We thought it was the right time to change and have a, have a different brand, but we can go into that as part of this conversation. Very happy to. Yeah, well, I noticed um, that you changed like your Instagram and your YouTube and everything. Everything is the T100 World Tour now. Um, everything from a consumer property. So yeah, everything you just described is is facing customers, right? So so yes, you're, those have all changed. Um, the organizational body, who we are, like what the company is called, like all the, the documents and things like that remains the PTO. The comparison that we've talked about that I think is probably the easiest one to apply to the most people who would listen to this as possible is UEFA being the organization that runs European football and then Champions League is their consumer facing brand, right? So I would have thought soccer is so big or football is so big that most people know Champions League is UEFA, but some won't and they'll just care about the Champions League. Same same principle with S&T 100. So I was thinking about questions to ask you beforehand um, and we obviously talked about it last week and things we might talk about and we've talked about it you know, for the last week. Um, and this was one I was going to ask a little bit later, but this, this leads us into us perfectly. Take me, okay. this is the first behind the scenes. Take me behind the scenes into the discussions to come up with the name T100 and like, what does it all stand for? What does the T even stand for? And who was the person who said in a board meeting, like, what about T100? And when did they mm. come up with it? Take us behind. Yeah. So look, it's it's a long story that we can go into sort of how, how we put all this together and the why, which is, you know, candidly, like like you said, when we were chatting last week, decided that um, rather than just talking about the news, like a lot of your interviews are around, you know, how do people train and what's the process that goes into something and thought, well, why not talk about the process 
of why we came up with this and, and what are we doing? You know, it's different to what the PTO strategy was before. But look, to be more specifically answering your question on, on T100, we very much recognized that um, PTO tour, although it sounds good, it sounded a bit too old fashioned, a bit too much like a PGA tour and ATP, you know, which both wonderful organizations, but, you know, founded, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. Um, so a little bit old fashioned. And then secondly, um, PTO stands for pay time off in America, which means SEO was a real nightmare. Um, I often used to even get auto replies from people that, that I was emailing and they're saying, oh, I'm going on the PTO. And that would give us a bit of a chuckle, right? Considering it was us, us that was writing to them. So we thought it was important to get a, a brand, a new consumer facing brand that would also do something which um, is described as, you know, in the name, you instantly get what it is. And so hopefully 100, obviously being the distance, triathlon world tour which is the full name it's t100 triathlon world tour what we hope will become known as t100 triathlon from a sort of the daily day-to-day -day. um and 100 obviously stands for the distance two kilometer swim 80 kilometer bike and an 18 kilometer run but what does the t100 stand for is it a play on words of like t1 like transition one or is it triathlon 100 or is it tour 100 it is triathlon 100. Um, we will never see that written, but essentially we we sort of looked at this and went, do we do T1? Is that really confusing to, is that like a good inside joke to triathletes? Because they know what T1 is, but confusing to anyone who isn't a triathlete. Do we go T2? Same reasons. Um, do we just go 100? We couldn't do that because at least in the UK, there is a phenomenal cricket tournament called the 100. And so that would be confusing as well. And so um, a bit like, you know, F1, we thought T100. And who was the person that ultimately came up with it? Was there one person who said, "Like, yeah, let's go T one hundred? Do you know what? There, um, well, we we would we decided uh, as a group, you know, as a, as a commercial team to go with it. Um, there would have been someone who threw the name out, I guess. Originally, I can't, honestly can't remember who it was. We we went through a whole rebranding exercise with a wonderful agency out of London called Matter, and uh, they actually worked on the ATP's rebrand a few years ago. So we were introduced to them by by our chairman, and they came up with the entire brand brand sort of offering you know the colors the teal the mixture of the um the three different colors they're supposed to represent the three disciplines of triathlon the sort of the beating heartbeat it's a lot of it goes into that which you don't necessarily see straight away and obviously naming and nomenclature is an important part of that too so both from the name of t100 triathlon world tour and then also that we would call the events the singapore t100 or the dubai t100 so that that was you know three or four month process it was ready way ahead of the launch because things took a little bit longer for us to get some of these venues in hand as as has been talked about a lot and i'm sure we'll go into greater detail today yeah which takes me back to where i was going to start this podcast today so we've got the eight race schedule we've got the dates we've got the locations can you take us through each race one by one i know it's a bit of a, a tedious process but i think it'll be very interesting so going through each of the eight races one by one and tell us why that location and how that location and take us behind the scenes to all the stories of what went into making each of the locations happen from conception to contract signed. So, um, yes, I can, but actually let me go further back if you don't mind, because the context of why we chose those locations came really came from the strategy. And so that's been, when I say strategy, like we obviously thought through a new plan by anyone who's followed the PTO will know that this is different to what we were describing beforehand. Um, and that this was kind of the, 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 the backstory, which we thought might be interesting and, and led to which locations got chosen. So it was nearly, where are we now? We're in February. So um, over 18 months ago, or just shy of 18 months ago, that we had a board meeting at the Collins Cup. So that was in, I think, July of 22. And that was a rare board meeting where we not only had 
the com commercial members of the PTO board there, but we also had some of our largest investors in person. So Sir Michael Moritz actually flew all the way, came to Slovakia to watch the race, meet the athletes, which was fantastic to have have him involved. Um, and off the back of that, we had sort of you know roundtable discussions, not necessarily in formal environment, but talking about what we were doing. And the main, I would say, takeaway was kind of two parts. One was that the raw ingredients or the progress that we had so far, you know, from, you know, we only started in 2020 and obviously that, that was COVID. So sort of two years in, we felt we had shown that triathlon had the, what I would say, think of my words carefully, the raw potential to go mainstream. Um, but that the strategy that we have probably wasn't going to get us there. Uh, and what I mean by that is my raw potential is we had very, very quickly been able to build out a media product. We had 32 broadcast partners that were showing it all around the world. So that was one of the hardest things to go and achieve. And we did it very quickly. So that kind of showed the raw ingredients or the potential was there. But where it quickly led these conversations, and, and this was driven actually by by Chris Commode, who's, who's now the chairman, but it came off, off this meeting, is and, and Chris's background is from the ATP. He, he ran that sport globally. Um, his comments to the board members was in his experience, you know, this could go mainstream, but that our current strategy of the majors to be the majors of triathlon with the Collins Cup wasn't going to get us that. Um, and what I mean by that is, I'm going to slightly greater detail for everybody, is the original strategy, we were very public about this, is we looked when we launched the PTO and said, let's look at tennis and golf as the two most comparable sports to what triathlon is in terms of wealthy demographic, individual sports, global, etc. The most valuable things in those sports are not actually the ATP and the PGA Tour, it's the majors or the masters, so Wimbledon, Australian Open, Augusta, etc. And so our strategy was to do exactly the same in triathlon, US Open, Canadian Open, European Asian Open, and the Collins Cup, and Collins Cup being based on, on the Ryder Cup, which is the sort of the cut-through moment for, for golf. And that was our plan. And for, for the first two years, we had begun to roll that out. We had Canadian Open, we had the European Open, we had the Asian Open, um, and the US Open. Um, so we, we'd done all of those. Um, however, Chris's feedback to our board is, look, for this to go really mainstream, let me, let me take a step back. Um, for it to go mainstream, we had to change that strategy. The, the reason why is that, the, in his opinion, as you know, someone who worked in sport for a long time, one of the reasons that the masters in golf and the majors in tennis are so strong is that they sit on top of this amazing, very strong calendar or, or pyramid of professional tennis and professional golf. So you've got other organizations like the ATP, like the WTA, putting on events all year long. And then the ones that really pop through or shine through into the, the public consciousness become Wimbledon and Australian Open and the rest. And our risk, if this is making sense, a bit of a long winding answer for you, but the risk in what we were creating is because triathlon didn't have a really strong pyramid of events underneath it, we might go and invest all this money to make you know four majors, but they would still not really get through to the public consciousness because there just wasn't enough, right? There wasn't this strong pyramid underneath that, that they were sat on top of. Um, now, on the one hand, that sounds really negative. It's like, oh, you know, the strategy is not working. What should we do? It's quite the opposite how the investors and ourselves all sort of reacted. We went, well, actually, we think we've got the raw ingredients. Maybe the current strategy isn't right. So let's see what we can go and do to, to make a new one. So at that meeting, and I guess what, July, July 22, um, the investors said to us, look, you've got three or four months. Let's go away and see if we can come up with a plan to take this mainstream. And, and on we go. So if I continue this winding answer for you jack on like what, what we went to next that led to a a board meeting in december 22 where we laid out a plan that we worked very diligently on for quite a few months around seven sort of core strategies that would lead to the t100 uh and and off you go
do you want to tell us what those seven things are or do you want to go on to the original question of, of each, well, each race? A lot of, it's a lot of detail, but and I some people might get bored by the detail, but ha- happy to reel them off and, and we can go through it. And, and then, yes, look, why don't you, you, you can ask me questions on the ones that you think are most important. So we went away and sort of looked at loads of different sports. Um, what were the ones that are successful? What are the ones that aren't? In particular, what were the new sort of breakout tournaments or leagues that were cutting through? Um, without any prestige or history because you know the some some of the, the best sports and events in the world um are huge and prestigious and the rest partly because of their history right they've just been going for so long they had that momentum and they've stayed relevant but um obviously we can't build a strategy based on history when we don't have any history so we had to look at what were the core ingredients that were going into successful new sports particularly with the lens sort of uh, it's it's a bit of a cliche term but silicon valley kind of esque disruption of if you have the right capital the right talent what can you go and do and so look yeah the, the seven things if i reel them off do it from memory um season-long narrative so that's one that we bang the drum on lots the and what i mean by season-long narrative is the season has to go together in a way that's cohesive and has an has an outcome so rather than just a hodgepodge of different events which you know, you know will own our mistakes here we were actually adding to the problem right we were adding four events five sorry to the existing calendar but they weren't linked together right they were just creating individual champions the um there was no relevance of max newman winning the european open versus i'm forgetting oh jan winning the us open right it was they were just different big events whereas a season-long narrative ties those events together in a competition that leads to, to an outcome at the end so that, that was the first thing secondly very specific to triathlon how important locations were and when I say locations, I mean being in bucket list, exciting places. This is why I thought of it when, when you first asked that question, go one by one through the locations. It's it's absolutely core to the strategy of going to exciting places um, that we think can elevate the sport. And we can get into the details of, of all of those in a second, one by one. So that's a seasonal narrative locations, um, consistency with the athletes. So having the same names and faces in the same places year on uh, event after event. And, you know, the overused comparison here is Formula One and the Max Verstappen versus Lewis Hamilton. It's not different drivers the following weekend. It's the same ones again and again and again. And that's particularly important to grow a fan base, but also to get media support, to get broadcasters behind you. They want to know they have a product that is reasonably simple to describe with the right kind of um people to get behind as in the personalities and then just to repeat and repeat and repeat because that's how you how you get cut through so and to do that obviously we would need to have commitments from the athletes probably meant a different compensation structure for the athletes to to account for that so that's number three then it's prestige and what we mean by that is you know obviously money is important and that's one of the major reasons that that um that exists in all in all sport is for what people get paid but also prestige matters a lot too um and if i use a good example from golf the Ryder cup very famously doesn't even have any prize money despite being one of the most prestige sorry one of being the the, the most um, coveted things to, to win and that's because it's so prestigious right that history so how do we go and create prestige it was authenticity of making it a world championship and so that's what led to the conversations with world triathlon that we could officially say it was a, a world championship and and a lot of this i don't want it to feel like this all sort of got done in a dark room with a whiteboard we were out there talking to the athletes we were talking to broadcasters we were talking to hosts we were talking to sponsors and all this came together and, and the prestige comment the reason why i bring that point up is that actually directly came from the athletes when we were saying well, what's important to you about doing a pto event or say going to the Ironman 70p.3 World Championships and where there's a relatively low prize money and the feedback was, well, we get to call ourselves a world champion and, and everyone understands that. So anyway, tangent there. Um, what else do we got? Uh, I think I've done four so far. Um, so technology, 
how do we use technology to get data in the broadcast in a more meaningful way? Um, brand, having it packaged in a way that people understood it and could aspire to it. So I mentioned the sort of SEO challenge we had before. The other reason is we want to have mass participation in these events. And so will amateur athletes necessarily um, sort of aspire to do something that's got professional in the name? Potentially not. That was maybe a slight issue. So that's where the brand came in. And then the last piece linking to, the, to what I just described around mass participation was building these events into festivals of multi-sport. And so what I mean by that is almost all of the events we have, there's a, a couple of variances, um, have not just mass participation in age group triathlon over the 100 kilometer distance, but they also have sprint distance and then swimming, cycling and running and various other activities around them. And the reason for that is two. One is that we want to get a critical mass of enough people that are coming to these events that they feel really exciting. And, you know, if you have a big crowd, it just does wonders for everything, frankly, from an atmosphere or as TV, the rest. That was the, the first reason. And then secondly, the mantra of the PTO is to grow the sport. And we think there is no better way to convert people into triathlon than to get a swimmer, cyclist, or runner down to a triathlon, do their individual discipline, and then see, you know, frankly, how much better the triathletes are, and hopefully they get inspired to join on board. So that um, was a long answer, but those are the seven pieces of what went into creating the T100 Triathlon World Tour. You've all heard me rave about Pillar Performance's triple magnesium powder for over a year now, but my second favorite product from Pillar has to be their Ultra Immune C. We all know the key to triathlon training is consistency and nothing wrecks your consistency more than getting sick every five to six weeks. I've been using Pillar's Ultra Immune C drink for a while now and I can honestly say that I feel like I've been getting sick a lot less. Like I haven't had those periods of four, five, six days where I can't do anything and can't leave the house and can't train because I've got a cold or another you know, chest infection. It, it honestly just hasn't been happening. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say that's because of Ultra Immune C, but I feel like it is. Um, Ultra Immune C from Pillar Performance not only contains vitamin C, which has well-known immunity benefits, but it also contains zinc and vitamin D. And this is one of the reasons I started taking it in June last year at the start of um, the, the Southern Hemisphere's winter and haven't stopped since. So if you're slogging it out through the winter, particularly if you're in America or Europe now where it is winter and you're spending way too much time inside and you're doing all your training inside, then grab yourself some Pillar Ultra Immune C. It doesn't just have vitamin C. It has zinc. It has vitamin D. All things that are going to benefit your immune system. Uh, and if you do want to grab that or anything from Pillar Performance, then make sure you use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off your first order. And so let, let's circle back and and maybe we can try and narrow it down a little bit. But I do really want to go behind the scenes in, you say it's not all happening in a dark boardroom, but how I always picture it is yourself and Chris Komodo, who you've talked about and who people maybe don't know enough. But when I picture the PTO and all the decisions being made and who's out there making them, I just picture you and Chris uh, in my head. And so I, I do sort of picture you and Chris in like a you know like a boardroom with a whiteboard, just throwing around ideas and then bringing in people for opinions every now and then when you need them, uh, and investors and, and and money and that kind of thing. Um, but can you can we circle back and you take me through why you and Chris and whoever whoever else was involved in the decision making decided to go with the cities that you did go with and and then the behind the yeah. scenes stories to yeah. make some of them happen if there are some interesting interesting ones. Yeah. 
Sure, absolutely. So, uh, look, it's there's a bunch of different people involved in this, right? So there's our investors, you know, and the investors, the one everyone always talks about is Sir Michael Moritz because he's so famous. But we've also got a couple of other wonderful investment investors in our group, one called Divergent, um, and the other called Acuity, in addition to Warner Brothers Discovery. So those folks all joined in the B round. Um, so they haven't had as much sort of promotion or publicity as, as Mike because he was the original backer, but all involved in the decision-making process and all, frankly, leveraging their own contacts to help us do this right it's it's not just a money thing we get from investors in fact if i use the um example of mike we wouldn't be in vegas if it wasn't for mike moritz like he was able to arrange access to a meeting we were able to go and then have to describe what we were doing and it sort of elevated it up within the city but anyway that that, that we can get to that in vegas in a second um there's the investors there's sort of the core group that works for the pto we're a pretty small team i think we're 24 people now maybe 25 so um it's not a huge group um it's mainly folks that are making all of the wonderful content and videos and social media and the rest that, that hopefully everyone on this podcast subscribes to and enjoys. So there's there's a team of people that we obviously involved in that. And then a couple of other stakeholders that are worth calling out. One is the broadcasters themselves. And this is all about a broadcast strategy with, and I say broadcast, I should say the word content, because um, it doesn't mean just through um, third-party broadcasters. There's obviously also a direct-to-consumer relationship and content we're making, but we were speaking to the broadcasters and saying, well, look, you're already giving us these windows or paying us this amount of money. If we want to take this bigger, what would you suggest we do? And a couple of the things we'll see this year, and the first of them we described it already is the season-long narrative. Secondly, they were really very positive about the locations and saying, we think it'll sell better if you're in Miami, as an example. Um and then another piece that with the broadcasters was to really expand the the offering around the weekend. So having more shoulder content, having more lead in, having more hype, um, so that people get excited about the the racing that takes place. Um, and I I've left them last because they're not the least. But the other stakeholder group I haven't mentioned so much is the athletes themselves, right? Whether it's direct conversations that I personally had and a few of the other teams with various different top professionals. In fact, Chris and I met with. I'm going to say 12 or 15 of the pros to sit down with sort of the highest ranked pros to sit down and get their personal opinions and how things were going. So, you know, long conversations about what works, what doesn't, how do their lives work? What do they think could be better? And so that was one sort of way we gained feedback. And then the secondly, which is the more sort of structured way is every month um, the elected athlete board meets and we would discuss the progress, discuss some of the momentum some of the ideas that they agree with this that they agree with that and that all goes into spitting out a strategy so anyway we're what 20 minutes in and we still haven't got to the answer to your first question which is the locations by location <laughs> so should, should we jump into that jump into <laughs> it yep lead us um and then look the way i actually rather than the locations themselves we actually went through a process i'm going to say oh, it's been a while now so i think we identified 60 locations that could work so we went through what is known in business as a balanced scorecard. So like you take each location and you, we ranked them on various different criteria. Um, did they fit the narrative? So uh, was it a bucket list location? Is it a strong media market? Uh, is it a strong sponsorship market? Uh, is there a strong triathlon market? Like are there local pros or is there a community of mass participation? Um, which continents were they on? Because you didn't all want to be in one area. Uh, and then weather, that's another one. And then permitting, did we even think it was operationally possible to deliver a triathlon as an example like you've got to be able to do it with um, obviously a body of water not only that you can swim in but that you can also create a transition next to so once you go through that criteria 60 cities well obviously lots more than 60 places but we ended up with 60 potential locations and by applying a score to them 
we came out with our ideal prospects and then we went off and went and spoke to them. Um, and uh, if only the execution was as simple as the strategy, um, there's a reason why this took a while to launch and also took a while longer than we intended. Um, in fact, I, I remember even even that board meeting I'm referencing in December 22, one of the questions from our investors very logically was, well, if we agree we want to do this, we know we want to go, can we do it in 23? And obviously the answer, although I'm very happy to be pushed by our investors at all times, um, not humanly possible to be able to spin up a tour that quickly, especially with the athletes involved, um, as in, you know, commitments and the rest. And so 2023 to us was a planning year where we wanted to tread water on the product we had. So we delivered three events in locations we felt that would fit the long-term narrative, right, um, of being exciting, you know, energetic on the ground. And, you know, maybe Milwaukee isn't considered the level of a Vegas, but what Milwaukee had was 10,000 plus very, very, um, what's the right word for it, enthusiastic fans because of the national championship. So, so that kind of kind of fit that. So 2023, we from a public perspective, at least, we're maintaining the position, you know, treading water with the product. And in the meantime, behind the scenes, basically all around the world, talking to cities, negotiating permit access, acquiring events in some case to be able to launch. So there was a lot of sausage making, as it, as it were, that went behind the process. Um, and we were, were thrilled with the, with the ones that we've got. But if we go through one by one, so we start the year in Miami in just over a month's time. So we're super excited about it. It's coming really, really quickly. Um, that's actually a partnership event. So that is delivered by Clash Endurance, um, which is the the group that was behind the uh, the race that we had uh, back in Daytona in 2020. So they used to be Challenge and then Challenge USA, I think. Then they became Clash, Clash Endurance. Um, and this was one where, you know, the, the majority of the events, we're putting them on from scratch. Like we, we're, we're creating them or we've acquired them. And we're operating them completely independently. In this case, there was there happened to be within that weighted scorecard a, a fantastic location. And I don't think I mentioned weather before in my list, but obviously when you can do these is, is also really important, right? You, like Miami, there are only a certain windows you can you can put these events on. Same, and we we learned that to our peril, candidly in Texas. Um, and we're always pretty open about sharing the mistakes or the success. And putting the event on as early as we did in in Texas was not a good idea. It was too hot. Um, it was probably quite obvious that it was too hot. That was the weekend we were able to do it, but it, we really learned it and felt that we, we've got to take weather as a as a higher criteria when we choose. So I'm waffling it a little bit, but Miami being our first event, partnering with the NASCAR, um, the folks, sorry, I say NASCAR, that's because it's the name of the, 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 the venue is owned by NASCAR. It's called Homestead Miami Speedway. And working with the fantastic team at Clash Endurance, they've already got an event on. So they already had the infrastructure set up. And actually, they had not announced this when we first spoke to them, but we were super excited that they told us it was coming. They were already working with uh, World Triathlon, or specifically the, the America's um, division of World Triathlon, to have pro racing um, with short distance uh, points. So there is an America's Cup off the top of my head. I think that's the second tier of... No, th third tier of short distance racing, right? So you've got WTCS, then you've got World Cups, and then you have the, the regional cup levels. Um, so they'd already planned to have that. So when we came along and said, well, look, could we integrate a, a PTO race in the middle of it? They thought it was a great idea, and we really excited to see what the, the product's like in a month's time. And so on that list of 60 cities, yeah, the eight that we've ended up with, were they all in the top 10? Were they all in the top 20? Were some of them, you know, 50, 60? Where, where, how, like, how close to you, uh, like from the, the top eight from that list, how close did we get? 
So I would say, I can say almost emphatically they're all in top 20 because we were super excited as, as we put this together. There are a few missing, right? And we've been public about this, right? We think that 10 is the right number. So having launched with eight, we didn't want to launch with 10. We thought that was too much stress on the athletes, candidly too much stress on ourselves operationally to stand that up in one go. So we would do eight in 2024 and add two more. So obviously there are a few destinations out of the our top 10 or top 20 that haven't made the list yet. Which I'm sure you'll ask me about, um, which we'll which we'll bring in, in in 2025, and we're in active conversations with lots of hosts um, around the world at the moment. Who sort of not only were we talking to you beforehand, but or, or since since we've announced, have taken a real interest and said, "Wow, we we love the core ingredients of what you've got here," and we can get into why a host would 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 have a PTO event in a minute. But um, a few more exciting locations to add in in 25. I wasn't sure whether this would be one that you would want to talk about, but. You you say there was you wanted eight races this year, but I'm pretty sure there were going to be nine races this year with maybe one in France that was going to happen right up until a couple of weeks before the announcement of the T100 tour. Can you talk to me about that? Sure. Yeah. Look, um, actually, it wasn't just France. There was uh, another location which isn't public, so I, I won't. It hasn't. I won't necessarily say where it was, but there were two other places which we had. Uh, let me put it this way we had significant progress to having an event there we obviously hadn't signed agreements otherwise it would have happened um but there were a couple of a couple of other locations which if we were having this conversation four months ago i would have said yeah i feel really good that we're going to do that and look they didn't make the list in the end um these things are really hard to deliver um both from an operational perspective but also the impact on the city the financial implications of, of hosting them and so yeah a couple didn't make the list that we thought would um they will probably come into that list in in the future um but we'll have to see right whether whether they make it um these things are not easy to put on and the criteria that we put on ourselves was a pretty pretty high bar um which is why we're so excited with the locations we got we think i mean if, if anything I, I mean it very genuinely i've no issues being quoted on this the fact that in when was it december 22 we put together this strategy on a piece of paper and said we think we can go and do this and now you fast forward to now we've got these locations it's it's better than we anticipated right it's uh these locations are so phenomenal we're really excited about what the impact they'll have on the sport ultimately because this is all with the lens of taking the sport mainstream right like we this is very much with the view that we think now we have the best product to elevate the sport to really drive the media properties to bring on more sponsors and ultimately take triathlon into the mainstream which is an exciting goal to have you can probably tell by my enthusiasm in my voice you know i'm a bit tired today but will you take us inside with two weeks to go what what made france fall apart um no i mean there, there isn't anything again like everyone always thinks there's a really controversial point about this uh we just didn't get to agreement with the location in particular that we can make it work and with the time frame right so you know, to be fair to them, and we, obviously we haven't said where in France it is, so it's not like I, I would make any feel, anyone feel bad. We had a deadline internally that we wanted to announce the P, the sorry, the T100 Triathlon World Tour in January of this year. That was already three months late, and a couple of locations weren't able, we weren't able to get all the details done in time. Um, we thought maybe we would. We were almost there, but not able to get them across the line. And, and when I say across the line, that's like, that's a whole bunch of different things, right? It's the actual like physical facility being booked. It's the road closures that go with it. It's the permitting to allow the swimming to take place. Um, there's a lot of those pieces and a few of them just, just weren't ready. If, if we'd given maybe another three or four months, we probably would have been able to have a couple more events, but um, we were facing a lot of pressure very understandably from the triathlon community at large to announce what we were doing and get on with it. And so some people made the cut and some people didn't. 
I'm almost tempted not to ask this question because I know that you're not really going to give us anything, but will, will you let us inside some of the other dream locations that uh, didn't quite make it, but that we might be seeing in 2025 or 2026? Yeah, so I'm not going to say the exact locations for obvious reasons, right? If we're negotiating with them, um, okay. me coming let's out. Let's just leave I it then. We... Let's just leave it then. But I'll tell you, <laughs> the big ones that people always mention are Australia, Canada, Germany, yeah. South Africa, yeah. some other parts of Asia, Brazil. Uh, are, are we in the right realms with some of them? So talking at the country level, yeah, absolutely, right? So what I don't want to do is, is go into the loca- the actual locations themselves. Um, yeah, if you go back to that weighted scorecard conversation we had, right? Like where is there a strong media market? Where is there a strong triath- triathlon community? Where is there a strong sports community? There was another thing we laid in, right? There may not be a strong triathlon market, but if it's an environment that loves sports, that's also a reason to sort of have a score. Um, if I say Oceania rather than Australia, um, yeah, scores really highly on a lot of those in fact it's really wonderful to see um the WTCS grand final being announced in Wollongong in a, in a couple of years that's like testament to how strong Australia is for for triathlon equally Canada um we've said this before like Canada is a market that punches above its weight in the triathlon world right for a relatively small country they have done phenomenally well from a professional perspective and have hosted some some great events um the Latin America market is a growth market for us um Japan China both massive opportunities. I mean, if anything, there are so many more places we could go and we're really fortunate to be in a position we get to be really choosy, um, which we will be. You mentioned before that you wanted to get it out by January this year and that you're already three months behind on when you'd originally promised you were going to get it out. Were there any conversations that took place behind the scenes and to go back to the theme of this podcast where maybe it was yourself and Chris or maybe it was investors or other people involved in, in the PTO where you were like, uh, if only the public knew this, like if only they knew what was going on and we could just tell them they might be a little bit more lenient on us or they might not care as much. Or did you ever have any of those moments behind the scenes? And if so, what were they? Yeah, I mean, on a, on a daily, of, a weekly, if not daily basis, yeah. I mean, the, the main thing being we had obviously spoken to the athletes in advance, right? And whilst we hadn't asked any of them to commit to a contract, conceptually, we knew that we had the support of the top professional to come on board, right? So we sort of had all of those conversations, as I said, through the year, some of them in person, some of them by the board. And we said to folks, we're not going to obviously ask you to sign a contract until it has the locations in it. But as long as we feel the good momentum, then that'll be great. So like, that was one one part of it. We knew we had, we all, we knew we were going to have some amazing fields racing. And that's arguably the most important thing, right? Probably up there with location for from a broadcast perspective of like you could put on the most amazing race in an incredible location. If you don't have the best athletes, that isn't going to work. Equally, at the moment where the sport is, you can't just go to anywhere. You've got to have a signing location with, with the top pros, I mean. So that was probably one part. And then, look, I'd, I wish we could have um, told everyone, hey, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, these are the locations we're going to. We just can't announce them for a few months because I think everyone would have got excited. And, and if anything, and we've had some really really lovely notes sent to us since the since the announcement last week of some naysayers that were like look we just didn't believe this and we didn't think you would be able to pull it off but now that we see what this is we're really excited and so um yeah look there was a bit of that behind but um one of the things i i often remind my you know relatively small team we talk about this quite often is is a phrase more from finance than than sport which is to zoom out 
right? And and what I mean by that is occasionally you might see specifically in finance that like a stock has done really badly recently and that, that might look like a terrible stock. But actually, if you zoom out, you realize it might have appreciated by like 10,000% over two years. So clearly it's doing okay. And this happens a lot in the tech sector, right? With the, the swings that they have. If you do the same thing with what we're doing, right? On the day to day, it might be like, oh, are we, are we there? It's, it's frustrating and the rest. But if you zoom out, you realize all the progress that we've made and indeed that are making because it's not like us announcing this on the 30th means we're done and hey now triathlon's mainstream off we go there's an awful lot of work that will go into both the delivery this year next year and the year after and like, i would be very surprised i mean this this journey is going to take at least five to ten years at least right where we're wanting and when i say the end result being mainstream right the these things take time. We think we've got the raw ingredients, but it's not like it's done now, right? And and what it will take, and I guarantee this, is that we'll make changes and we will have done things wrong and we'll correct them. Um, one of the ones that's really easy to talk about is the number of athletes, right? So we think 20 men and 20 women is probably the right number, but we don't know, right? Until we've gone and tried and tested it. There are some people who vehemently have lobbied to us saying it should be more athletes. Others think we've got the right number. By the end of this year, we're going to have a good sense of it. Should it be 25? Should it be 30? Should it be 20? I don't think it's less than 20, but um, that's a good example of the kind of thing we will iterate and learn over time. Let's stay with the athletes here. And and this is a tricky one because there's so many things I want to know and it's hard to, to know where to pinpoint. But <laughs> yeah. we know that the the first 16, the 16 men and women, they both auto-qualified based off the August rankings. I think everyone knows that, but if they don't, it was basically – um, the top ten from from August last year at the end of the at the end of August they all were automatic qualifiers and then it was you know the next highest rankings and then there was four wild cards men and women so maybe we start there we know the auto qualifiers but how did you pick the four wild cards and why those people and were there other people who were offered them but didn't get them and can you take us behind the scenes on all of that and so what you just reported then is actually more accurate than most people have have talked about, which is good because this bit was complicated. And what I mean by the complicated bit was not just the hot shots as we're, we're calling them the extra four or extra eight, I should say. Um, it was also even the athletes that were automatically qualified because the tour was delayed. So we first thought we would launch this in October, as I have very publicly said and, and had a lot of criticism. And I, I own that. Like that was my mistake. I should never have committed to it when we couldn't deliver. Um, we had a two-step qualification process. And that in itself made it a bit confusing for folks that, as you just rightly reported, top 10 on, I think it was August the 31st, got the first 10 offers. And then it was the six athletes afterwards on December the 31st. But as happens in sport, that means that there were some athletes that were top 10 in August that weren't top 16 in December, and it's just confusing, right? So we have confused a few people when we did this, not least the athletes, but luckily everyone gets it now. We just have to walk through it and explain it. That's a one-time effect as far as we're, we're concerned. In the future, we, we won't have to go through that because we won't be launching the tour late. Um, so there's the yeah the 16 athletes that automatically qualified on both Um Every single one of the, the female athletes um, who automatically qualified selected their position or, or took their their place, which we were thrilled about. We'd assumed coming into this that it's hard to predict what the number is, but maybe three, four, five um, male and female athletes might turn it down, especially with the Ironman Pro Series. There's, um, you know, obviously motivations to, to not do the tour. So we were absolutely over the moon, candidly, that uh, that many women took it. And what was the number? 14 out of the 16 athletes who were offered it. Uh, no. 14, yes, 14 out of the 16 um, on the men's side. So we were uh, thrilled by that. Can you take us behind the scenes on the four hot shots or wild cards and why them and, and who didn't say 
yes, you know, because I'm assuming you didn't just get the first four of each or else I think you would have said that. So can you tell me about the decision-making behind the four men and women hotshots and uh, and more, more, more so than who they are, take us behind the scenes on it. Yeah, so uh, the the rationale, if you, if you use that, is the, the behind the scenes is what would the – so there's two reasons we did it. Um, one was we recognized that even as we put the tour together, there might be some phenomenal athletes that will have a great impact on the series and could potentially win the series who are not going to qualify based on their recent performance. Right. And, and that's really natural. That's really common in, in, in all sport. Um, and that's what wildcards exist for normally. However, it's a bit harder if it's a season long competition for wildcards to be factored in that way. Right. So we thought, look, let's add an extra four places, which we think four places, men, four places, women that will have, I, I can't remember what the public line is, but it's something like we'll have that their inclusion will impact the dynamism of the racing, something like that. Right. So that they're, they're going to bring excitement. They're going to be up to the, the caliber. Um, and then there were a couple of different lenses we looked through for, for how to select those. Like some of them were, phenomenal short course races athletes that have proven time and time again their ability to not just perform but to perform in a season-long narrative because it's important right like and this is where it'd be really interesting a lot of the athletes that race in long distance haven't gone through that before because it doesn't exist right until we brought it along whereas in, in short course racing it does right with people are being used to doing the wtcs so that was one lens we looked at um and then the, the good old-fashioned in, injury and coming back as i said before so you know alistair brownlee and javier gomez two perfect examples of athletes that ranking didn't necessarily reflect their athletic talent and so um yeah uh, let's not go through name by name but like those are the examples on on the one hand alistair and javi on the other um other end uh hayden and flora both uh, sorry not hayden hayden's someone we offered um but we weren't able to make it work so happy to touch on that in a second um martin and flora as examples of along with taylor of athletes that um had performed phenomenally well um on wtcs and were ready to step up i mean you touched on him hayden wild gustav eden christian blumenfeld uh, let's touch on names that, or maybe we don't have to talk about the specifics. You can, if you would like, they're ones that are obviously front of mind for a lot of people. And if there are others, like uh, people would be fascinated by, we offered this, this female and she said, no, the same way you just sort of t- talked about with Hayden. Sure. Yeah. So there are a few athletes we spoke to and it just didn't kind of work out with the season, right? Not from a lack of like not wanting to, it's more, this was the one, the one actually take, take a step back. One of the things that, we were concerned about and have actually tried to sort of build this into the model is launching in 2024 to launch an Olympic year, right? This becomes of all the years to launch or sort of out of the four year cycle, the Olympic year is not necessarily the best time to do it. And so we were very conscious that athletes have a lot on their plates. Um, and so scheduling was one of the main reason why, uh, in fact, in pretty much every case, the only reason why an athlete wouldn't have taken their um, place with us was because of scheduling and being able to achieve the other things they wanted to do in the year. Um, so yeah, Hayden, a good example, obviously Olympic games and getting on that podium or to the top of that podium, um, is the major focus after that. I think we would love to see that man step up and do some more longer distance racing. Um, if you use the, uh, other examples you, you talked about and, and we've been open about it, I imagine he will too. Um, Christian Bummerfeld wasn't offered a hot shot contract because he, he auto qualified, right? It was the world number one. Um, he has been very open that, uh, he wants to win Paris. 
And so until Paris, he's 100% focused on that goal. And then after that, he'd also like to win Kona. And this is where that dynamic of the the every other year in Kona and Nice sort of plays into it. And I think this was a particular year that he wanted to do Kona off the back of Paris. And it's just not physically possible to do to do both. Oh, sorry, to do all three, right? So the way we've looked at this is, and, and we really have looked at it with our scheduling and the dates and the calendar, is that it is possible to do, not just possible, it is very achievable to do both the T100 Triathlon World Tour, go through the go through the year, and also achieve one other outcome, right? One other goal. And that could be winning Kona, it could be winning Nice, it could be winning Paris, right? Um, doing three, so doing the T100 and Paris and Kona and Nice, it's a step too far. We just don't think it's possible from a logistics perspective. And the couple of athletes that aren't in have, have made those choices because they couldn't stack it all up. I've been using a lever movement system for months now, and I honestly have no idea why I didn't start using it years ago when I first heard about lever. Um, for those of you who don't know what a lever movement system is, it's a system that you take to your treadmill, like I take mine to the gym um, when I go to the treadmill at the gym, or if you're lucky enough to have a treadmill at home, you can just take it to your, your home treadmill, and you you attach it to your treadmill, and then from there it attaches to your hips so that it takes weight off while you run. And I'd been struggling with consistency in my running for years, like literally two to three years. And I think I was a bit heavier than I used to be and was just constantly getting niggles and injuries. So I decided to buy a lever movement system as like a last resort to try and fix it basically and get back into my running, uh, mainly because I saw heaps of pro triathletes and runners using them on Instagram. And it, it just changed everything for me. I, I, I just recently finished a four-week training camp with some pro triathletes and I was able to run 84 kilometers in a week there, which is the most I've ran in a single week in over two years. And I really do think it was all because of the consistency I found by using my lever movement system uh, a few times a week. I've completely gotten over a persistent lower limb and, and foot niggle I was getting from running the past couple of years. And yeah, I'm positive. I'm positive it's completely because of the load I was taking off um, two to three runs a week. And so if you're someone like me who struggles with finding consistency in your running because of niggles or persistent injuries, or like you just want to increase your, your mileage a bit more safely, or even just as a preventative measure against injury in general, in general with your running, then I truly can't recommend getting yourself a lever movement system enough. They're awesome. And it's just one of those purchases that I can rec recommend so comfortably knowing you 100% will not regret it. Um, so if you do want to try one for yourself, then you can head to their website and, and when you check out, make sure you, you use the discount code TTH, which gets you 20% off your order. Were there any disagreements about athletes? For example, did you and Chris or whoever else was involved in the decision-making, did one of you go, I really think we should target this athlete? And the other one was like, hmm, no, I don't think so. Let's target this athlete. And I'm not going to ask you to, you know, tell me the names of the people, but if that did happen, how did you ultimately ultimately decide who to go with? There, um, it wasn't so much a disagreement, but I will share some of the the process that we went into because again, we haven't been public about this, but I think people might find it interesting. Is um, and this maybe led to one or two of the, the athletes not not racing. Um, is that we wanted the compensation not to just favor the top one, two, or three. Um, we felt the triathlon is a little bit top heavy and look, uh, the same case with the PGA beforehand, right? Like if you, if you won, you're winning a hundred thousand dollars and that's amazing. But if you're finishing in 18th, 19th, you're only making a couple of grand. And so we thought it was important as we went through the, the compensation structure that it wasn't, although the, the best athletes always have to be compensated the most, that's fairly obvious, right? Sport is meritocratic. The winners take the, take the, um, 
the lion's share, as they say. However, we didn't want to do that at the sacrifice of athletes racing 10th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th. Um, and so I can't remember where the cut is off the top of my head, but I think it's 17th, maybe even 18th, that if you if you finish consistently in the 18th all the way through the year, you would still make $100,000 for being at the T100 tour. And we spent a bunch of work to make sure that it was essentially that deep so that meant that if you're winning first, it's maybe not as lucrative as if we put all the money into the first, second, or third, but we felt we would have a better product overall if we went deeper because it would provide more incentive to more athletes to race, and that's obviously integral to sport. So that was a um, – what's the right way of putting it? Uh, I wouldn't say risky, but it was one of those things where, obviously, you create this, you hope it's going to work, and we're so stoked with the athletes that we've got on board, right? Like athletes have voted their feet and shown that it did work, but it was certainly, if you were to push me again, it's been a couple of months now, but on one of the things that we collectively were most stressed about was whether we had the right compensation model. Like would we attract the athletes we wanted? Would they be motivated and incentivized and excited by doing it? And um, we put the model together, we've offered it out and what an incredible set of athletes are going to be racing the tour this year. We're super excited as I, as I hope everyone is who listens and yourself, Jack. So with the athletes, I've tried to figure it out myself. I reckon that basically if you're a contracted PTO athlete, you should be making somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 as a minimum. Like if you took it seriously, you should be making that. But is that all they're getting paid? Is, it, is, is their contract somehow weaved into like this is the minimum you'll make if you race the amount of races you're contracted to race? Or is every athlete paid an additional sum like just for signing up? So like say Fred Funk signs up, is he paid a certain amount before he does any races just from just from signing the contract? So two two things. One, um, your your math is you're accurate with the structure, but not necessarily the amount. So as I said beforehand, I think the majority. So let's say eighty percent, probably about right. Eighty percent of the athletes will make a minimum of a hundred thousand. So they're in the tour. They do what they are expected to, which is you know do five races plus one. They're going to walk away with a hundred thousand throughout the year. Um, that's sort of the intention of how it's structured rather than the 50 or so you said um how it's how it's actually structured and we've said we're going to be totally open and transparent about this we will publish the amounts um we didn't want to lead with prize money as the sort of main hook it was locations and athletes first but we'll be public about what everyone is getting paid um soon enough it won't be too long um is three different ways so there is what we're calling a marketing contract so it's it's uh, and it's a level of compensation that's linked to just being in the tour then there's the prize money at the event level. So each event, the prize money pays $25,000 down to $2,000 off the top of my head. So as long as you race, if you turn up and you make it to the finish line, you're being paid. So that's an important sort of tenant. And then thirdly, there's the season pool, which provides the incentive in addition to, to becoming a world champion to race throughout the year um, and get those four highest scores that play into being the world championship. So three buckets different amounts depending on how you do and that comes into what you would make and that's how i get to sort of that minimal about a hundred thousand dollars um obviously it's, it's hard to predict what the winner will make because it depends on how they race and did they get first and second all the way through and the rest but we think it's probably going to be about half a, half a million um what the the winning prize person will win um which is not a bad uh pocket of change for for some triathlon racing are all athletes that are contracted all 40 athletes being paid the same for that marketing or you know the the guaranteed money are they all being paid the same or is it like well to get lucy charles it cost a little bit more than it to get fred funk and to get you know um javier gomez it cost a little bit more than to get lucy byram yeah yeah exactly so it's um it, they are different 
Um, it is meritocratic, so it's through the rankings one through sixteen, plus the hot shots being slightly different on the on the contract structures. Um, so yeah, the the number one and the number sixteen are not the same from a marketing value, and so the contracts reflect that, right? And that's not a criticism of athlete sixteen. That's just that's the way sport works, right? If you're world number one, you're going to have a higher profile. It's more of a messaging, and so there's a bit more compensation that goes towards that. And and this is what we'll, we'll be public about. We're going to publish all of this pretty soon. Did the PTO consider making the athletes sign ex- exclusive contracts for 2024? And then a little side question to that. Are the majority not exclusive, but are a couple exclusive? Um, none are exclusive. All of the contracts are the same. So actually, we went out of our way to make every contract the same. We didn't want to, um, for multiple reasons, negotiate 40 different contracts. Um, so we, we made everything everything standardized. Um there is no exclusivity because we didn't feel that it was the right approach for, you know, a, a athlete body with a new tour to come in and say our way or the highway. We didn't think that would be the right thing for the sport. We thought that would split and divide the fields. Um, and so we've done two things. Not only is it not exclusive, but we've also gone out of our way um, considerably to make the calendar work in a way that an athlete can do another goal. Now, it doesn't mean they can do lots of other goals, as, as we've already talked about, right? But um, it didn't mean they had to commit exclusively to the PTO. I want to change direction here a little bit. Uh, and this sure. is one, again, there's a couple that I was nervous about asking you, but this is probably the <laughs> one I'm most nervous about asking you. I heard a little whisper <laughs> last year that the PTO were offered by Ironman to essentially team up with Ironman. Like, hey, here's an offer for the PTO to come and host um, their races alongside with or maybe – you know, join forces with a few Ironman 70.3 races. So hypothetically, I'm not saying this is the race, but say we had Ironman 70.3 Hobart. Hey, the PTO, you can come and host PTO Hobart there like and alongside the Ironman 70.3 Hobart. And the PTO and Ironman, we can work together on races and and collaborate on races rather than it be the PTO versus the Ironman. And I was, I was sort of heard a little whisper that, that you were offered that directly by Iron Man. Can you confirm or deny that and maybe take me inside that a little bit on where I'm right and where I'm wrong? Yeah, sure. I can both confirm and deny it, right? So I can confirm we are in open conversations with Iron Man and we, like they, like we want to have a dialogue. We want to grow the sport. They are obviously a beneficiary if we grow the sport, right? So that there's alignment there, even if they might disagree with how we do some things. I think no one would disagree the triathlon, uh, sorry, the PTO pumping 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 lots of money in particularly around media isn't going to benefit them um, because they've got lots of racing inventory right so there's an open dialogue but i can also confirm for you that they did not make that offer right so we've not received an offer for them to run the tour for us um and i say that because it would have been considered very very seriously right like we think about the level of effort um for the whole team and in creating all of this um we would have certainly considered it um however you know even to their credit if, if we go back to that list of the the criteria we chose and on the rest is it's not necessarily like you could have plucked 10 of their races and just made the tour overnight right so there would have been probably an element of creating new things anyway so maybe it's unfortunately not as simple as it uh, as it sounds was there any offer from iron man to the pto on collaboration with races no, 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 nothing formal. Um, we've had conversations around how can we work together. And look, and I'll, I'll say this on the podcast, and I don't care who hears it. I would love to work together um, with Ironman on some races, right? Um, where they've got some amazing events which we could work alongside. They have amazing capability, which, which you know, I think one wouldn't question that they're up there with 
I mean, there's probably two or three groups in the world that deliver events to the level that they do. Um, so we would certainly be open operationally to to work with them for sure. So who knows? Maybe we'll see it. And obviously, there's there's a new CEO in town um, that might lead to some some differences. I don't think Andrew's going away altogether. I think it's said that he's going to be on the board. And um, I've known Andrew for a very long time, and I hope he he stays in the sport for a long time. I'm going to touch on that in one second. Just one question first. Can you okay. quickly take me behind the scenes of the conversations that took pl- place at? At PTO headquarters, when Ironman dropped the news of the, the the Ironman Pro Race series. Oh yeah, yeah, what a day that was! So that did take us by surprise, and you know, Andrew, to his credit, called us in advance um, by about twenty minutes <laughs> to tell us what was going on. Um, but we appreciated the the heads up, and they were very open about it that this was a competitive reaction to what we'd announced. Um, I think before we'd announced the season long tour, but also before we'd announced. Um, the world triathlon uh, world championship collaboration i don't think they really care what we were up to but in doing that we forced their hand um to you know create a competitive series um their words not mine right like they've been open that this is because of a reaction to the pto and kind of kind of two reactions there's the overall mantra what is the pto here for um and then there's the sort of operational like what are we doing on a day-to-day basis and, and you look at it in in through those lenses the overall as we said at the time we were um incredibly excited about it for the sport we think it's a wonderful thing like any the pto is here to promote triathlon and particularly through professional triathlon right and so any any body that is putting in significant sums into paying athletes more and promoting them more which you know hopefully this all works out but that was very much when they announced the press release it was the we're putting the prize money in and we're going to invest in the broadcast so that's a wonderful thing and, and we were really excited for the sport that it would do that um operationally it caused us to tap the brakes a little bit because now we knew like 16 events or 17 events i think it is um we knew the dates we knew we needed to work around that and make sure that um we had a product we felt that could work alongside theirs which which we now have but it certainly caused um a little bit of a step back to go oh wow okay now now we know what's going on let's um see what we can do around it and then you did touch on andrew messick and the new ironman ceo firstly your relationship with andrew messick i know that you guys have a long history um you've worked together in in you know sort of multiple capacities really and uh, and can you can you fill people in on that? And then can you also let us all know, have you had any new conversations with the new Ironman CEO and, and what can you tell me behind the scenes with those conversations? Sure. So I haven't, um, I believe it's Scott. I haven't met Scott or had any conversations with Scott yet. I'm sure we will do. Look, the, the, it, the guy is stepping into a busy organization with a very busy calendar. So I don't think I'm number one on the call list. He's got a lot of employees and stakeholders and cities to go, to go and chat to first. Um, Andrew and I have known each other for a very long time, as you said, like back to uh, multiple iterations of, of companies before of, of my time at Active and, and his time at Ironman. Um, and look, I think actually people, and I imagine you'll probably do an interview with him before before he heads off. People forget quite how much that organization has transformed since he since he stepped in. Um, even from a business perspective, like it was a very small licensing business when when Andrew started. They they sort of had the glimmer of this strategy that put together with their their owners that they wanted to go and move from essentially licensing their brand out to folks to building a a real event business and you know i don't know how long andrew's tenure is maybe it's 15 years or 12 years in that time period they've gone from a licensing business to being i imagine the largest producer of mass participation in the world i think they might be the second in terms of participation but they're certainly the first in terms of revenue and that's a phenomenal achievement so um i think he's done an amazing job for them and uh, he's handing on a great business for for the new guy to to take on 
I think he's been here 12 or 13 years. I know it was 12 years when he announced his retirement. Don't know if it's turned over to 13 yet, but yeah, long time, isn't it? Um, and now from Ironman and Andrew Messick to another uh, triathlon company, maybe not quite as big as the PTO or Ironman, but Super League Triathlon and the entire Malibu situation, which got to be honest, I didn't really follow and don't fully have my head around and have been waiting for this conversation with you to ask you. Can you tell me and fill maybe the listeners in on what this situation is, you know, the drama between Super League Triathlon and and the PTO and specifically yourself and, and the Malibu Triathlon? Sure. Yeah, look, I'll touch on it a little bit. We're, we will be a bit more public with maybe a bit of a backstory in a couple of weeks. We didn't want it to overshadow the T100 launch for obvious reasons. Um, Malibu is not going to be the location of the T100 California that we're announcing soon. So um, you heard it here first. I think that's already already been said beforehand, um, which is why we don't really want it to overshadow what we've just launched and what we're, we're excited to be doing. Um, the Specifically, we are providing some financial support that the Malibu Triathlon, or the, the original owner of the Malibu Triathlon, can get that event back to strength and, and make it the celebrity powerhouse that it once was because it, it hasn't been the last few years. And so um, not that big a deal with us. It's not a fight against Super League or anything as exciting as that. We did consider, in fact, if I if I related to this conversation, maybe this is how, how to talk about it. Um, we did consider it as one of the locations. We looked at it. We obviously knew because we're in the industry that the city had put it out for tender because the, that's how these these things work, right? You you might own the IP or the name, but you um, you operate the event under the auspices of the city giving you permission, right? And so those things often work on government tenders and they work for certain time periods. And that, that's not unique to, to triathlon, actually. Like if you compare it to, say, another industry, like, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the UK, like private operators will run like the train franchise, but they'll do it when the government gives them a contract and that contract lasts for a certain amount of time, and then it goes away and they either renew or it extends or something else. And it's the same thing with events, right? That you might operate an event, but you do it in the support of the city. And in this case, and this, this does happen reasonably regularly. I mean, I can think of a couple of different scenarios of, of actual locations, which I've been through RFPs on, um, where the city says, you know what, we want to have a new look at ownership or see what else there is in the market. And they put it put the, the permit out for bid, essentially, for other companies to come and bid on. Um, that was in middle of last year, or in fact, maybe slightly later, I can't remember, um, in the summer. We decided not to bid. We actually thought, Do you know what? This doesn't fit T100, love to make it work T100 one day, but what the city's asking for is not what we're wanting to deliver. Um, and so we decided not to bid on it altogether. Um, there was a charity that was being formed by the, the founder and the creator of the event. And they said to us, look, if in the extreme case we win this, could you help us? Like, can you help it get back to strength and, and put some of your infrastructure and things like that behind it? And so we said, yeah, look, we'll we'll put a letter of support. And and in return, if this becomes an amazing celebrity race, then we'd love to promote professional triathlon from it. Um, I wish there was a more um, controversial, exciting story than that, but it's pretty much pretty simple. It has seemed like Super League are not seeing it the way that you're just telling it, though. They They seem to be outside looking in quite pissed off about it. And just just to make sure I have this right, Super League Triathlon have been running a Malibu event there, the Super League Triathlon Malibu, and they've been running that for a few years. And they they had a contract there. That contract's run like that's that's you know run its course. It's finished, and so now anyone can is open to to bidding on that and and taking over the race if the owner of the race you know 
gives them, like grants them the race. And that's what's happened essentially here. They, the contracts ended for between the, the Malibu Triathlon and Super League Triathlon. You've come in and said, well, we would be interested. And then Malibu have sold it to you. Is that is that right? No, no, not quite. So you're you're almost close, but then you're. And this is why Canada didn't really want to talk about it today because it's quite a, quite a long story. But um, given you've you've opened the conversation, let's touch on it a second. So the um the permit, so the permission to operate the event, um, expired. Right, there was a contract, and at the end of the contract, it either gets renewed or it gets put out for tender. And that's what I meant by like that's the same as so many things with government. Right, that they have government have contracts with groups, then they expire. They either renew it or they they put it out to tender. And to tender means to bid on it by another group. So it's not selling it; it's just being given it to somebody else. We considered bidding on it. We decided not to. Um, somebody else bid on it again. Super League. They won. And um, we will be involved in some way from a marketing and, and sort of infrastructure support later. But it's not a case of buying it. It's just a case of you know, whether you win a contract or not, just like any other part of government. Yeah, makes sense. And so oh, I don't I don't want to put you in a position here, but I, I like because <laughs> I haven't gone deep on it because I'm not a Super League. Like I don't watch Super League. I'm not a Super League fan. I'm just – if everyone who's listened to this for long enough, no, I'm just not really into short course. Even though I love Hayden Wild. Even he can't get me to watch it consistently. So I haven't been across it. But why are Super League Triathlon so like angry then? Because hearing you explain that, it just sounds like, okay, that sounds pretty pretty normal. That happens in business all across the world. Is it just like right. a is it just that they think that you shouldn't have come and taken over what they, you know, saw as their event and they they see it as sort of a little bit of a statement of um, competition and or is there some collusion going on? Like, why are they so upset? Look, I, I can't put words in their mouths or like jump into their brains, right? But um, so we're, we're not taking over the event again. So like, if we had come in and taken it over as the T100 and it became T100 Malibu, we were perfectly within our right to do so. We just chose not to, right? Um, as in, we had a right to bid on it. I'm not saying we would have won the bid. It's just like any any, any competitive process. Um, but uh, look, it's... It's if, if you've got if you've won a contract, whether you're on a sponsor or, or any any kind of environment, and you lose that, you're going to be upset about it. You don't want to jump up and down and be happy, and so um, that's the only reason I could say that they'd be upset. Right? It's a shame that for them that it's no longer going to be the Malibu Super League event, but they moved quickly and they've already got an event in another place in California. I forget where um, they're going to Long Beach. I'm pretty sure they're going to Long Beach. They announced that around the same period. So look, these things come and go. And look, the Long Beach event, I imagine, is on a, a similar process. It'll be a permit that's been given to them and they'll have to bid on it to continue it or it'll get extended. Like this is the way the endurance sports works. You mentioned inside of that that PTO California is not at Malibu. Can you tell us where it is? Not yet. <laughs> We've got a, uh, I, I will explain why I can't. Um, we have uh, one more board meeting to ratify um, the location and we needed to get some approval nods from there. Um, this was a location where we knew this wasn't going to happen until after the launch. We had to weigh up, like, do we wait another two weeks before we announce everything? Or is the industry just chomping at the bits, frankly, to get going, uh, including the athletes? And we thought it was better just to get day end live, which is why we did. Which, because if you think about it, with the, the year we're having, if we waited another two weeks before we launched the T100, we would have been launching two weeks out from our first event. And we just thought optically, hey, we run out of time. So that'll come really soon. Um, and we'll be excited to be able to announce it. But I'm not going to comment on it anymore until we do. Win Republic has just unveiled their lineup of professional triathletes for the highly anticipated 2024 triathlon season. 
Among the athletes joining forces with Win Republic are Ashley Gentle, Chelsea Sodaro, Lionel Sanders, Braden Curry, Leon Chevalier, Josh Amberger, Aaron Royal, Susie Cheatham, Jocelyn McCauley, Sam Appleton, and Rebecca Clark. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The list goes on, with many more exceptional athletes set to be wearing Win Republic tri suits in 2024. Win Republic has forged partnerships with these specific world-leading professional triathletes, aiming to support and empower them in their journey towards achieving their goals in 2024 and beyond. This collaboration presents an exciting opportunity for Win Republic to leverage their extensive and detailed analysis and knowledge of aerodynamic, hydrodynamic, and ergonomic testing. The invaluable feedback, encompassing both men and women and middle and long-distance athletes, has the ultimate goal to further enhance Win Republic's industry-leading aero tri-suit range. At Win Republic, excellence is their standard. They work with the best to bring you the best tri-suits in the world of triathlon. So, whether you're a seasoned athlete or an aspiring triathlete enthusiast, be sure to check out Win Republic for the latest updates, insights, and top-notch gear that will elevate your triathlon experience to new heights in 2024. And if you do find yourself wanting to try any of their tri-suits, cycling, running apparel, anything for yourself, use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off at their website. And then the grand final, that's the only other location that hasn't specifically been announced. Um, can you take me behind the scenes as to why and the decision-making as to why to just leave it as like the grand final and not give any clue uh, as to where it's going to be? Well, we've given a little clue, actually. So we've we've said somewhere, at least, and I guess I'm saying to you now, that it's going to be in the Middle East, right? So geographically, it's in the Middle East. Um, the reason we haven't announced it is totally opposite, sort of, well, opposite is not the right way of putting it, but it's a different reason to us just not getting the approvals yet. It's that we want to announce it in the market that it's operating in, right? We want to make a big fuss for our host, which we're super excited about doing. But um, we didn't want to launch the whole tour there because a lot of the stakeholders of the industry were in London. It's where we were based. So we wanted to announce the tour in January in London, and then we will be announcing in market. So no doubt, I know it's a long way from Australia, but you'll get a press invite for the the launch of the grand final or the announcement of the grand final um, pretty soon. And we will be doing it in the market where that event takes place. And we're really, really excited about it. And another one changing direction. Um... I guess now that we're not ignorant to doping being a part of long course triathlon because of Colin Chartier and you know him being a former PTO Open winner, um, do you think that because the PTO or the T100 Tour are bringing such huge potential for, for money and prize earning um, potential for the best triathletes in the world that there is going to be more doping in professional triathlon and do the PTO behind the scenes feel like that's something that hey, we're bringing all this money into the sport. We maybe have to take a role of leadership on making sure that we're trying to catch people who are going to cheat the system. We definitely want to take a greater leadership role in catching people, yes. Um, it's more incentive. I'm not saying there's going to be more doping, right, because it's not as binary as that, right? There's obviously more incentive to do it because there's more prize money, right? But that's that's pretty normal in, in every sport, like anything. If you, if you have incentives, you'll have bad actors over time. Um, not a reflection of triathletes, not even a reflection of sports people. That's just the way humans work, right? Unfortunately, um, wish they didn't, but hey, that's the way that's the way the world is. Uh, what we are doing about it, though, is putting together, and it'll be launched with Miami with the first event. Is a very rigorous in and competition and out of competition. Um, what's it called? Anti doping program. I'm sorry, there's there is a more technical word for it that I didn't use then, but like essentially anti doping for for lack of a better word. Um, it will be done in partnership with World Triathlon and be a combination of one provider that's sort of doing the out of competition and then in market where we're each event. 
um, we work with a different group that's specific to that country, right? And so um, that's probably more detail than anyone wants to hear other than like the headline stat of we are going to be investing considerably in having a very, very rigorous anti-doping program. Um, and it will extend beyond the T100 athletes. So we're very conscious that you can't just test the 40 athletes and the wild cards that are turning up. You have to also have a program that can go deeper into developing athletes as they come through. Um, and that's where the PTO rankings are really important because it creates that pathway. And so all of this is part of our announcements with World Triathlon or part of our partnership with World Triathlon. And it will begin in Miami in a month's time. Can you, to go back to the athletes now, can you tell me in 2025, 2026 ongoing, how are you going to decide which athletes stay from the previous year and which athletes come into the tour in the following year? So we have lots of ideas around it. I can't say it like in stone, this is exactly how it will work because as I said early on in our in our chat, we've got to learn this year and iterate and see how things develop. Um, one thing we don't want to do is have a closed league. And so that's uh, it's a really common phrase in the States. So like in, in America, as I'm sure you know, I think actually in Australia too, there isn't really much um, relegation and promotion. I don't, don't, my knowledge of Australian sport isn't good enough, so apologies. Um, in Europe, it is, right? So relegation, like whether someone can make it in or not, is really important. And that's a whole narrative which we want to have, right? So we'll, towards the end of the year, there will be multiple narratives in the, PG, in the, sorry, the T, T100. There'll be who's going to win. Who's going to be the world champion? Who's going to be taking those top spots? But also, like, who's going to be out, right? Who's not going to get a contract for the following year? Who's not going to get automatic qualification? Um, and so um, it'll be a combination of the athletes racing and getting the scores. And obviously, the if they're in, that's opportunities to really showcase their performances and do well, which means they get automatic qualification. And then we will use the PTO rankings for the few athletes that, uh, that want to break their way in and have justified racing at the highest level. I mean, the most important thing to us is that this is the most competitive um season-long competition and ultimately you can almost replace the word season-long and just say the most competitive competition in the sport and that will attract the very best athletes that are racing for the best prize money the most prestige and it will grow the sport it's uh i know i sound like a broken record perhaps but it's a really simple model we've just got to go out and deliver on it there's one that's close to my heart i want to i want to talk to you about i almost want to pitch it to you um i know you listen, <laughs> okay. you listen to the podcast every week so you've already heard the episode where we talk about it but and I try not to ever suggest too many things to you when I talk to you about like, hey, what, what should happen in racing? The one thing that I just feel is a no-brainer that every single fan and every single athlete involved in the sport would like is a changing to the penalty structure in races. I feel like the yeah. five-minute penalty is the stupidest thing in triathlon. It just makes no sense. It wrecks races. It's to the point where the PTO don't even really hand out penalties a lot of the time. Like there hasn't been a penalty really, uh, a five-minute penalty really in the PTO's history. The five-minute penalty is stupid. Can we bring in more like F1, uh, which I know that you and the broadcast crew take a lot of inspiration from, smaller penalties given out more frequently so that the rules can be you know, applied and then ultimately followed. And if they're not, there's actually some drama that provides more entertainment over the course of a three, three and a half hour race. I completely agree with you at the structural level. Um, it's just a case of working out the right way to go and implement it. Um, one of our sort of places that we're going this year because of this being a world championship tour is that we're working far closer with world triathlon as the governing body. So previously we were always obviously sort of sanctioned by 
the go the governing bodies, but there was no involvement at the the governance and the the technical level. And so we have spent a lot of time with World Triathlon over the last few months, getting the te technical documentation in place. I mean, to to their credit, and just to explain how complicated this is, I'm going to say, I, in fact, I know this because my CAO references it quite a lot. It's 265 pages long as the uh, as the technical guide for for delivering events at this level with with World Triathlon. And so we're, now a lot of that was written primarily for the WTCS and short course racing. And so we're now elevating long distance racing in a way that hasn't been done before within a competition like this. And so we're having to adapt and look at some of those rules that don't necessarily apply. And I I would agree with you at the personal level and from a TV Jeopardy level that penalties are something that should get looked at. So I guess um, watch the space. You'd be surprised how much we listen, actually, right? And these things maybe sometimes take a bit of time to get implemented, but we are like sponges of listening to the community. We read all the social media posts. We listen to all of the podcasts, not necessarily always me, myself, but collectively we listen to all of the feedback and it goes into um, how the sausage gets made. Huh? I have a real world story about this. Um, after the PTO tour got announced the other day and the athletes got announced, I got a, a personal message from Martin Van Reel to thank me for having him on the podcast and, and talking about the PTO with him because he said that, the PTO, maybe you, maybe someone else, I don't want to name names, slid into his DMs after listening to that episode. So what you've just said is very clearly true and not just a throwaway line that you're just saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look, it's not uh, not all just because of, because of you. I mean, it, it's in general, right? And I know you didn't mean to, like, you're not claiming claiming that that was because of you. We just listened to feedback, right? Taylor Spivey was another one who was very open on, uh, I don't even know what podcast, or a couple of different interviews where she said, actually, do you know what? After this, after Paris, I want to go long. And so unsurprisingly, she was one of the many athletes we spoke to. Um, sometimes it's because we hear them talking about it in the media. Sometimes it's because we know through an agent that they're doing things differently. Our email inbox is just full to brim with people asking about wildcards and being able to get get places. And, you know, we listen. So, yeah, I appreciate you saying it. And it's glad glad to see that people see that we are. It's not a one way system with us. It's very much a two way sort of communication. You've touched on it and around it a lot in this conversation, Sam, but the, the money behind the PTO and how to make the PTO or the T100 series uh, sustainable, can you take us maybe into a little bit more detail than, than what you ever have before when talking about it publicly about you know board meetings and conversations and deals and contracts in place with the PTO? Um, like how how do you plan to survive long term? How will the PTO make money long term? What do the PTO need to do to make money long term? Like what 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 has to happen this year for the PTO to survive in 2025 and 2026? And and instead of just throwaways, can you really take us behind the scenes in that? Like how will the PTO still be here in 10 years time and not just vanish in two years time? Sure. I mean, that's a really long topic, right? Like it's at least we've been talking for an hour and 10 minutes, at least another hour and 10. Um, let me think about a way that I can sort of succinctly answer a few. Um, so the most majority of the locations are three to five years, right? So we, we've underwritten this. We know it's going to take at least that amount of time before um, this scales and we might change locations. So as an example, so most of those that should hopefully give everyone a little bit of a, a breath and reassurance that this ain't going away overnight, right? We, we will definitely see these events for, for a long time. Um, specifically to look, how, do, how does the PTO scale? It is through delivering what we've described, right? So building it to a 10-season world tour that attracts broadcasters, attracts sponsors, and attracts participants. Like, we we want to see 
my I mean, we'll, we'll talk about some of the individual goals that they depend on different races, but we would like to see thousands and thousands of age groupers at each of these events right? at different levels. We're going to have open categories. We have championship categories. There's swimming, there's biking, there's running. You know, in our first event in Singapore, we had 6,100 participants, as you might remember, because you were there. Um, when you weren't throwing up at the back of a porta cannon, um, <laughs> Singapore Ballet. So there was, <laughs> um, there were, uh, which was, you know, another good reminder that it wasn't the water in Singapore because you got sick too, hey Jack. So that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I was drinking the uh, water, the lake water that they swam in every morning, though. I'm sure you were. Yeah, you were just walking down and grabbing the water and drinking it from the cup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the so now that we know it wasn't the water in Singapore, we're very excited about being back there in, in a couple of months' time. Um, so look, mass participation in age groupers are part of it, but they're only a they're in a very important part, but they're only a part. And this is where we're very different from pretty much everybody in the space, in that um this is not a model that's built on mass participation, right? There are multiple other revenue sources that we've got and have been starting to collect, which is why the investor said, hey, double down, right? The, we'd shown the raw potential even 18 months ago. We were signing meaningful sponsorship checks and support and and beginning to sort of show that hey this business can really take off now you asked me for like more detail age group participation government hosting corporate sponsorship and content those are the sort of four core buckets and then there are a bunch of other ancillaries which begin to play in right and that could be merchandising it can be food and beverage expo um creating a membership product like there are loads of different things that come as sort of follow-ons um to it but the core business is built around those four things and we've sort of proven each of them and now we have to go scale them up which this is how most venture-backed businesses work you sort of prove it over at the what's known as the event level economics and then you scale the number of events and then it, it all takes off so uh i would say this is going to be a yeah like four four to ten year journey depending on what the outcome well the outcome goal being you know triathlon is mainstream we think this is the product to go and take it there um we have some wonderful investors that have bought in quite literally with their with their financial investment on the journey that we think we can take triathlon and the outcome will be wonderful for the sport. For the record, I do truly believe it wasn't just the water at Singapore because I was <laughs> sick as, and I never went in that water. My actual theory is that Mick and Newt made everyone sick. I've been calling him patient X for about six months now. Um, so, yep, I think rather than, it should actually be Mick and Newt belly, not Singapore belly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, it was really, it was so unfortunate, right? I mean, it was, there was COVID flying around. There was people getting sick. It was, um, this, this is what happens in 2023, right? When people are coming off the back of, of the pandemic that we were in and, and the rest, but um, obviously unfortunate to see it. And hopefully we don't get a repeat in any of the events this year. A big part of the the PTO, Sam, to, to move away from Singapore Valley um, is is broadcast. Like you keep talking about it. You talk about it nonstop for anyone who listens to you talk and making a broadcast product and um, and having broadcast partners. What in 2024 will differ? We've, we've got eight events, not three. Is it just going to be the same as it was in 2023 where for each race, we tune in for a women's race, we tune in for a men's race or... Will there be will there be more? Like, will we be going to more the American sort of uh, sports broadcast where it's like talk shows, you know, preview shows after the races? Will there be breakdown shows leading into the races? Will there be you know lead in lead in um, coverage? Like, is there more that we're going to be able to watch this year in twenty twenty four? So it's good because like we're an hour and twenty minutes in, so I can give you a really short answer. Yes. <laughs> um yeah look we're, we're doing a bunch of different things um we're going to test them out as we go through the year 
each event is not going to be the same because we need to learn and we did a bunch of testing last year but we're going to do more now with the product um we have i don't know when you're putting this out but we'll put a press release out in a, in, a, in a few days we are really thrilled to be working with img who are the leader in in sports rights and distribution basically created the sports industry and they are the ones that are helping us go and get those wonderful tv contracts that we can go and promote and see more and more people and get the triathletes the the professionals known and make them household names because that's how this sport goes mainstream and we think that the athletes that we have and the caliber their athletic performance the way they speak like the, the there's so much potential in the sport it just hasn't been realized yet and we are generally grateful that we're in a position to be able to go help do that and we've talked about the behind the scenes with the races and the locations and the athletes but would you take us behind the scenes as to who you're bringing out like bringing into the team for broadcast and commentary and like who's going to be on preview shows and is there any, you know, big name um, athletes, commentators, you know, is there is there changes in that department as well to make the broadcast a better product? There is um, across a bunch of different things, right, in terms of the technology we're using specifically to commentary. Uh, I think I, I said this on a, on a podcast with the, the Pro Try New guys the other day. It's a complicated mix to, to try and get it right, and we don't think we've got it right yet, right? And, it's, and that's a, the mixture of who's on camera, who's behind the camera, who's speaking. Do they gel well? Does it fit the, the narrative of what we're trying to do? So we're going to test and learn and, and do a few more. We'll see a few different faces and names at different races this year. And maybe by the end of the season, we say that's the core team and that becomes consistent. Or we say, actually, do you know what? Let's continue to have some variety. Um, I honestly don't know the answer yet. We've got to get through the year. But um, they're the one, hopefully, theme everyone takes away from if, if they've made it to the hour and 20 minutes that we're on is that we're a group that listens and learns and iterates and changes. And we try and make those changes as quickly as we can, right? It's very, again, back to the cliched phrase, Silicon Valley, but like that's basically the way the tech sector works is, you know, you don't create something and launch it and just that's it. You iterate and you iterate. Obviously with something as big as a calendar, it takes some time. So we couldn't just announce each race as we go, but now that we have, we will continue to iterate this product until we think we have it performing in the way that it will take off. And we're really excited to see that journey. The T100 tour, will we ever see the T200 tour? I know we talked about this on our previous podcast, but is that why, is that another piece of the puzzle as to why that could work? Because we could have the T50 if we wanted to go short course, we could have the T200 if we wanted to go long course. It certainly fits with the brand, right? Um, there is not the plan at this point to do it. And I think that's when when you asked me that on, on the, the, the when we spoke last time. Um, it is not our intention to go longer at this point. Could we in the future? Yeah, potentially. Um, but at the moment, we think the product that we've come up with is the right one to take triathlon mainstream and sort of really work as a broadcast product. Once that's performing really well, will we look at other things? Definitely. Definitely, because we're a group that wants to grow and and we're excited and we like to be pushed and challenged. So um, we can absolutely see a future where we would add those kind of things. At the moment, there's no plan, right? We are very, very, very focused on T100. So that's that's what we'll be doing for, for this time. I think that's pretty much everything I have, mate. Um, that was a great chat. Uh, thank you for being so so open and honest with me. Um, my, my only question is a personal one. Is there a race this year that you're personally most excited about? Oh, you know, I wondered if you'd ask that question, actually. And, you know, there, there's a saying, we talked for an hour and 20 minutes and then we didn't go um, event by event, did we? Because there's, there's so much story that goes into it. Um, <laughs> I tried two times and you were like, no, nah, not uh, happening. Well, so it's it's not like, I'm not going to ask him a third time. time. Yeah, there's there's so much more to the story, right? Than, than the <laughs> yeah, event exactly. themselves. Um, 
uh i'm not going to reel off one i'll just say like we're super excited by the different like, there's very different ones we've got here right we've got no not of, we what about you what about you not not sam renouf ceo of the pto sam yeah. renouf triathlon <laughs> fan well it's, it's it's still the same answer if you put triathlon fan and, and me with the, with the pto ceo hat on and, and that's maybe why i am so passionate about the product there's not one location where i'm like oh that sucks right oh i had to put that in like these are all awesome right vegas and ibiza are you know, entertainment party capitals of the world and we're putting triathlons on there. So one would think that that's a fantastic destination to go to. What else we got? Singapore. London. Dubai, London, all amazing, iconic cities where we're bringing mass participation into cities that just normally don't have these kind of road closures. You know, Miami, what an incredible place. And it will, Miami will be, will be super cool because of the relationship with Clash Endurance and what we're doing at the racetrack there. Like, it'll just be different, which is nice to have something on the calendar. And then we've got those other ones we'll talk about soon, which I nearly slipped up and said on the podcast. So oh, I know. I thought you did. <laughs> I'll shut up now. <laughs> Tune in soon. And we're excited to see you all on the tour. Sam, just quickly, you, you said that most of the events you're running yourself, but um... – the, you know, like Clash Miami, they're they're sort of going to run that for the PTO. London Triathlon, are you guys running that, or is there more of a story there, or would this be another half an hour uh, of the podcast if we go into it? it? There is a story. Um, it wouldn't so much be uh, a thirty-minute one. It's just that um, we acquired that, so that's an existing event where we looked at London. London fit the criteria of the balance scorecard really well, except for one place, which is the permits and being able to get a permit to have the permission to put on another major triathlon in London wouldn't be very possible. And so this is one case where we spoke with our investors and we said we would like to acquire the existing London triathlon. And so we went and and bought that um, from the current owners and they have transformed it from it became the London Triathlon, been going for like 17 years, was once operated by IMG. Then it um, had turned into Challenge London. And so we then went, went to the folks there that were operating it and said, look, we would really like to be in London. Could would, could we acquire it and then turn it into T100 London, which is exactly what we've done. Or London T100, I should say. That's me saying it the wrong way around. I know that we're, we just wrapped up. But is this similar to the Malibu situation except Super League aren't there? Is it like the same thing except in one situation – someone is pissed off with you and you're not actually even doing the racing there. Whereas the London situation, there's no one pissed off at you and you are actually doing the racing there, but they're the same situations. Um, no, not really because of the difference between doing an RFP in the city, sort of asking for someone to come versus us going and acquiring an event, which the city was very happy with. So it's, it's all triathlon, but there's different nuance. Like anything, there's always a long story that goes into these things. Um, but we're we're really excited about London. I mean, you can tell I'm excited about all of these races. But like London is London is home for me. Um, it was the biggest triathlon in the world back in the day. I think it did fourteen thousand off the top of my head. Um, and it's it's nowhere near that now. We want to see it go back to those kind of numbers, but also showcasing you know the greatest. I think greatest athletes in the world, not just the greatest triathletes, but the greatest athletes on this planet racing on the incredible streets of London. So we are pumped about it and there's lots more coming. Amazing, mate. Okay, officially wrap it up there, even though I just thought of three more questions. Sam, thank you for coming on. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Love it. Um, Let's see you all on tour, I hope.